The human being is only a reed, the most feeble in nature, but he is a thinking reed. It isn't necessary for the entire universe to arm itself in order to crush him. A whiff of vapor, a taste of water suffices to kill him. But when the universe crushes him, the human being becomes still more noble than that which kills him because he knows that he is dying and the universe has no idea of the advantage it has over him. Blaise Pascal in Les Pensées. Welcome to Delmarva today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. Blaise Pascal, the great 17th century French philosopher, went on to develop a theory of the mind-body relationship, which is called Cartesian dualism. The dualistic nature of the mind and the body is under serious question and even dispute today by the scientific community. But Pascal does offer us a great insight. And that is our capacity for self-awareness. The neuroscientist Stephen Fleming calls it metacognition, a nice 50-cent word, which means that not only are we a thinking read, but we can even think about our thinking. And that self-reflection has a great impact on our mental health and our physical health. What then is the relationship between our mental health and our physical health? When you visit your doctor, what does he or she see? Is it only the reed and its malady? Or is it the reed thinking, reflecting, caring, responding? My guest this morning is Dr. Jane Gagliardi, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Scientist and Associate Professor of Medicine at the Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Gagliardi is board certified in internal medicine and board certified in psychiatry. She is currently director of the Combined Residency Training Program in Internal Medicine Psychiatry. Individuals who complete training in combined residency programs experience many opportunities to observe and think about where the body ends and the mind begins or vice versa. Dr. Gagliardi, welcome to Delmarva today. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And just before I get started saying whatever comes out of my mouth, I should specify that I speak my own opinions and not those of my institution. Well, I appreciate that, Jane. And I'm really honored uh, to have you on the program this morning. Thank you very much for joining me. Let me begin with your teaching. Um, I know uh, both of my children are professors and the pandemic had a significant impact on their teaching at uh, the two universities where they work. 
How did the pandemic impact your teaching at um, the medical school? I think that's a great question. And I think there are multiple answers that um, kind of foreshadow and underline this idea that you raised with Blaise Pascal. So I do both clinical teaching, which is while I'm taking care of patients, there are learners that include medical students, sometimes PA students, maybe pharmacy students, and then residents in medicine and or psychiatry. And we learn by taking care of patients. And then there is also the um, didactic teaching, which I think has been markedly impacted, both of them, by the viral pandemic. So um, I strongly believe and always have that if I'm going to be an excellent clinical educator, I need to be doing work on excellent clinical services. So I've always taken it as my mission to model and advocate for excellent patient care. I also think, um, there are tons of threats that took place to well-being and engagement for our learners and our teachers. Early in the pandemic, from the clinical perspective, um, sometimes behavioral health experts and learners were being told there's not enough PPE for you to actually go in and see patients, which not only separates the ability to talk directly to a patient and establish a human relationship, but also may give you this feeling that you're unnecessary in patient care. Later on, there have been other types of threats where people are starting to question resource allocation, decisions about vaccination, decisions about masking and mitigation strategies that can give the learners on a clinical rotation kind of mixed feelings and uh, kind of like a moral dilemma about how best to proceed with patient care. Some of them may solve that dilemma by strongly advocating to their unvaccinated patients that they really should get vaccinated. And some may um, experience dysphoria or a hard time reconciling their own personal beliefs with those beliefs of their patients. For didactic teaching, perhaps like your children and definitely like my sister, who is a professor of art history, I've had to learn how to use Zoom, which was really not natural to begin with, and um, had to be comfortable figuring out a lot of my didactic teaching is in small groups. And there's definitely a difference in small group teaching when some people are off camera <laughs> and um, trying to learn how to use the chat and use the annotation tools and use various strategies to keep people paying enough attention so that they can stay engaged was definitely um, took a lot of effort early in the pandemic. Um, I think the other thing, um, early on we had learners who were really care, like terrified of catching COVID or maybe giving it to their family members because way back a year and a half ago, we didn't actually know, was it contact spread? Was it respiratory particle spread? I still actually have a Rubbermaid in the back of my car for the shoes that I'll wear in the hospital because I didn't want to risk bringing those germs into my house. We had students who had to turn to all virtual learning, even when they were supposed to be taking care of patients. And so in order to deal with that, we saw some really amazing examples of figuring out how to be engaged and meaningful in the mission, which was to take care of patients as safely as possible. So we found some really inspiring medical students who were doing their part by volunteering to help physicians and nurses, by um, volunteering to vaccinate people in the COVID vaccination sites, by doing whatever they could, whatever their part might be, even if they were excluded from some of the clinical locations and actual buildings where we do the didactic education. 
Um, for the psychiatry and med psych residents, they actually worked with a couple of faculty members and organized a screening program to try to decrease the risk of COVID-19 transmission in, in homeless shelters, which added hours. That was a volunteer effort that really added hours to their busy days, but I think provided meaning and value to their own education in a way that was beneficial to their overall well-being in a really kind of calamitous time. In addition um, to the physical threat of COVID-19, there has also been more of a psychological, you might say spiritual or psychosocial threat of all sorts of things going on in society. Um, there have been politics, there have been um, kind of increasing attention and media attention to racist episodes of violence against Black people. And those types of activities and the feelings that come up with them also have been in some ways what I would consider part of a pandemic and figuring out how to help people reconcile our past with our present and how to become a truly equitable and anti-racist institution as I know my institution is dedicated to being has been very meaningful and not just always a straightforward path. Um, so I think we've had virus affecting people and we've had societal pandemics affecting people. Um, and I think it's been um, a time of a lot of quick growth on a steep learning curve for all of us. Jane, I'm thinking when you're making uh, your, uh, your clinical rounds with, um, with your students, I'm assuming because of the pandemic, you're wearing uh, PPE and um, that, uh, how did you feel about how that separates you from both the patients and from your students? Uh, how do you overcome that communication uh, barrier that all that equipment must uh, create? So on actual COVID units, people are in full PPE, which is an N95 mask, a face shield in some places like a hairnet, um, a, like a gown, booties and gloves. And that for sure, people aren't hanging around chatting in that kind of PPE. Generally speaking, when we're taking care of individuals who have COVID disease, we limit the number of minutes and the number of people at one time who are in a room um, to decrease the potential for disease spread. More broadly in our institution, we all wear masks. We've all worn masks in the institution for the last 18 months and there is no eating in the common spaces like we used to have. And so even in the workroom where I'm working this week and last week on the general medicine service, it used to be on Saturdays, I would bring in bagels or donuts or something to sort of create a sense of, you know, I care about you and community. And now, you know, I don't want to actually have anybody take off their mask and eat in this room. And we're all keeping our masks on and sitting. They've moved the computers a little further apart. And so you have to try other things besides the usual um, food and smiles. I was actually reflecting yesterday how different people look. You know, if I put my mask on here, you know what I look like. Here we are on Zoom. But I don't know that my learners have any idea what I actually look like. And sometimes when they take off their masks briefly, I'm like, oh, I didn't know that's what you look 
like under there. And so it's very interesting to see how much you can get out of somebody's eyes. I think sometimes being more explicit in asking about both the patients and the learners well-being or, you know, sometimes on a general medicine service, there are some tragic or sort of terminal illness situations, really checking in with the younger learners, you know, how is this going for you? Boy, it really seems like a lot of your patients have tragic stories right now. Why don't we talk about how that's going for you instead of really just talking about how to get them out of the hospital and what are their labs looking like? I found that to be a useful strategy in some ways. And then, yes, I think when we put on the full PPE and face mask, I actually was maybe show you, I actually purchased some different, some, some of us are resorting to different eye protection to try to be less threatening to our patients. And so this is a pair I was really happy to buy lately. It just oh, looks like a pair of glasses yeah. instead of a big old face shield. So right. I've got this and my mask on, but at least I don't have like a big alien right. face shield on. Mm -hmm. Right. You don't look like a space cadet. At, at, at that point. Well, let me ask you, Jane, why, why psychiatry? And um, how, do, uh, how do psychiatric and, and medical problems uh, interface? What did you see that, um, I know you're certified, as I said, in, in, in both internal medicine and psychiatry, uh, what made you turn to uh, to psychiatry? Well, we sometimes joke that everybody who goes into behavioral health has a good reason for doing it. Um, and I believe you know my parents, so perhaps you have a deeper answer of that than I do. Really, though, I think my favorite answer to the question is to like, why did I add psychiatry to my internal medicine training? Because I applied in both internal medicine programs and combined programs in medicine and psychiatry is this, um, that there's no living human being whose body is not connected to their brain. And so having gone through the training, even if I'm, even if I'm rounding on the plain general medicine service, or if I'm rounding on our psychiatry emergency department service, and not one of our combined patient care services where intentionally we're taking care of both you know, I can't help but notice that there is an individual who has a psychology and can be motivated and might be experiencing grief from the things that we're telling them. And perhaps, and I hope that my background training in behavioral health helps me sit with distress and helps me be a more compassionate provider, even of general medical care. Uh, because quite honestly, having spent time in the psychiatry emergency department and taking care of patients on inpatient psychiatry, there is very little that one of my inpatient general medicine patients could say to me that would act. I mean, I may not have heard it before, but it's very unlikely to shock me. So um, for those reasons, I think the psychiatry was an important addition to internal medicine training. And the way we did the training, it's five years split between specialties. So it's pretty interesting around the third year, you really start being unable to kind of totally divorce one from the other when you're seeing patients. Even if you're rounding in the outpatient psychiatry clinic, you might be worrying about their anticoagulation for their atrial fibrillation. And you might be thinking about how their diabetes is impacting their depression. And kind of at the end of that training, um, we generally find that the combined trainees emerge with a much more 
uh, kind of broad and holistic view of how to take care of patients, which can sometimes extend behind, you know, beyond just the medicine and psychiatric to include social and, you know, things like access to medications and where are they going to go and how do we navigate this big blank space between where our medical system ends and where the patient's resources start? Well, Jane, I could be totally wrong, but uh, in, my, uh, in my general sense, I think of, of psychologists as working with people on coping mechanisms, how to deal basically with, uh, uh, with the world and with, and with their problems. With psychiatrists, I often think of chemical intervention um, rather than psycho, uh, psychotherapy or, or something like that. Uh, am I wrong in that, de in that designation? Do you, I know you do uh, chemical intervention. You do that both in your internal uh, medical work and in, uh, and in uh, your psychiatric work, but what in addition uh, in the world of psychiatry that you do, you do with your patients beyond uh, chemical intervention with them? Well, there is some really inspiring psychiatrists, psychologists, and neuroscientists who would say that even um, there is a quite a bit of evidence these days that some of the psychotherapeutic interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy or some of those coping strategies also result in uh, measurable and demonstrable changes in the way the brain works. And so even there, I think sometimes we are finding ourselves needing to prescribe chemical interventions because perhaps the evidence-based psychosocial and psychological interventions aren't covered by insurance companies. And at the same time, I think while you're prescribing medications, um, most patients will understand this when I say it, uh, just throwing a bottle of medications at somebody isn't really necessarily going to result in the change you're hoping to see because it's, there's a whole process in prescribing that involves considering the specific patient and the better you're able to gather their history and understand where they're coming from, including their financial limitations, their beliefs about taking medications in the first place, family history of response to medications, what their actual illness is. And so in psychiatry, we, it's all symptom-based, you know, so we have to do a thorough evaluation of what, what symptoms are you presenting with and kind of what diagnostic categorization is most accurate to try to address, you know, so we can find an intervention that will help you with those symptoms. And then really thinking about of the, you know, it's kind of a limited, but large number of medications available to us for consideration in psychiatry of all of those is there one or are there a class that seem like they would be recommendable in this situation and then talking to the patient about you know their thoughts on those medications counseling on expected benefits and side effects and risks and alternatives and then really you know if i don't think a medication is going to work i won't prescribe it if I do think it's gonna work, I think it's only fair for me to say, I really expect this could be beneficial for you. So there's a whole psychotherapy that can go along with prescribing medications. 
on the psychiatric side, probably more so in some ways than on the inpatient medical side. But even there on the medical side, this is one of the ways I couldn't divorce my psychiatric care from my medical care. I find myself, you know, always wanting to make sure my patients know why am I suggesting the things I'm suggesting? Why do they need to go for this urgent procedure? What are the diagnostic considerations? And always trying to figure out, you know, do they understand what I'm talking about? Do they have capacity to make this decision? Um, in psychiatry, we also, so psychologists in many states cannot prescribe medications. The background training for psychiatrists is medical school. And so there is more of an emphasis on pathophysiology, differential diagnosis formulation, and kind of arriving at a diagnosis and treatment recommendation. Psychology training has um, clinical psychologists do many, many hours of clinical work before they arrive at their ability to practice clinically. And they gain specific expertise in evidence-based psychotherapies, of which there are many different types, um, but not so much the pathophysiology from a body medical perspective, very likely the pathophysiology from a brain perspective. And so one other thing, psychiatrists, um, I don't happen to be one of the ones who's trained to do this, but electroconvulsive therapy and transcranial magnetic stimulation, ketamine infusions, other neuromodulatory um, experiences that actually have a high degree of evidence for benefit. Those are also things that we can recommend and sometimes, depending on the psychiatrist, administer or refer for consultation. Jane, can you give me an example of where the, the psychiatry uh, plays a role in intervening in a malady or, or, a, or a sickness that someone has? Yeah, so the mind-body connection, some of us would say, is almost, uh, it's like artificially induced. So... I think I had shared with you before, there are some examples, like I've had patients come in and they're tired and lethargic and they kind of haven't been eating and they've lost weight and they seem depressed. And, you know, the average kind of the psychiatric assessment is melancholic depression. And um, it could be, and there could be appropriate treatments for that. And let's say that patient seems to have melancholic depression with psychotic features and you send them for electroconvulsive therapy. And then you notice that they can't get it because every time they try to induce anesthesia, their blood pressure goes really, really low. Then you start thinking like, what things on the medical realm can cause all of these symptoms? And then you maybe think, oh, I wonder if it's adrenal insufficiency. I wonder if there's an endocrine reason that this person is actually having these symptoms or having this reaction. So in some ways, a lot of endocrine disorders can present with behavioral symptoms like adrenal insufficiency, hyperthyroidism. People can present with um, panic attacks or a lot of anxiety or a bunch of weight loss. They might seem manic. Hypothyroidism, people seem depressed and lethargic and they might kind of puff up and seem demented. There are more subtle connections between some other medical diseases in the psychiatric presentations. And then there are some really um, there's a wonderful book called Brain on Fire by Susanna Kahalen, which talks about her own personal experiences with um, NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis. 
And she initially was thought to be um, maybe having bipolar disorder, maybe to be using too many substances. And it turned out she had a diagnosable and treatable autoimmune brain disorder um, that was making her act as if she was manic and having a bipolar episode. And so, um, you know, in that book, she talks very compellingly about the importance of physicians and healthcare providers who will listen to the patient and what they're saying and take them at full value, which I think is a strength in psychiatric training is to really learn how to listen and believe the patient. Whereas I think sometimes in time limited diagnostic, almost sometimes people worry that they're algorithmically based, those kind of the cognitive processes that lead us to sort of assumptions may be tempted to take over, especially if time is limited and resources are constrained. So looks like bipolar disorder might, might be bipolar disorder, but like, wait a minute, she's telling me she's never had bipolar disorder. Nobody in her family has bipolar disorder. She doesn't actually use drugs. There's some abnormalities on the brain waves on the EEG, like maybe it's not bipolar disorder. What else could it be? How do you instill in your students a sense of holistic medicine? The fact that they're that they are, or, or do you even need to? There's a there's a question. Maybe they're fine doing it the way they are, but this is a human being who has walked in here with all kinds of mental issues going on, even normal, as well as their physical ailment. So when you work with your students, how do you get them to see that, that this is a complete person? And I'm, and I'm seeing there the interface also between psychiatry and, uh, and, and medicine. Yeah, I do think um, for me, it's hard not to see my patients as people. I come from a non-medical family and I can kind of, it's like you go from being like a regular person to being a healthcare provider. And I remember um, for better or for worse, I remember a lot um, from like the way things felt before I knew some of this medical information. And so I think it's really important to be able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and try to empathize with what it is they may be experiencing. And to do that, you have to gather enough information, you know, so that you're not just making assumptions. So with my learners, I think they, I, this is why I think clinical education bedside rounding, seeing the patients together is super important um, because, you know, I'm quite likely if I sense that one of the learners is like, okay, we've checked that box, we've checked that box, we're all ready to go. I might say, so Mr. Visitor in the chair, what's your wife supposed to be like? Can you give me a, an idea of when she's not altered and delirious how she spends her day, or perhaps when I'm meeting a new patient and we've finished up the official history taking that the students have done, I might stop and ask, you know, can you please, I, I hear you using some terminology that makes me question, are you a medical professional too? Can you tell me a little bit about your background? How many babies did you have? You know, and so rather than just being social history questions that help me complete a template, I'm really interested in that person so that I can 
best match my approach to helping them manage their disease. And I think that's a powerful way of teaching the learners. I think the vast majority of younger students that I've seen and early residents are quite dedicated to patient care and to advocacy and to being, you know, complete and compassionate and thorough doctors. I think there is a um, kind of another pandemic of burnout, especially among medical professionals that I believe comes from moral injury, seeing what patients need, seeing what the system can provide them and seeing how that's a mismatch and having to collude with the system, in my opinion, is a morally injurious prospect that can accelerate burnout. And then you start hearing people say things, I've heard this sometimes from people, this patient's just in the emergency department for psychiatric evaluation because they want to have a place to sleep and they wanna have food. And I'll, I'm now at the point, you know, um, 18 years post completion of my residency, where I can say, boy, can you imagine how hard somebody's life might be if being in this unpleasant locked area in our emergency department is the best option they have right now? And so I think we need to figure out how we can help with that. And so those things, I think calling attention to those types of situations and having real human and authentic interactions with patients in front of learners is super important. Well, Jane, I want to thank you very, very much for coming on the program today. Uh, the, the discussion, I believe, is incredibly valuable uh, for uh, our listening audience. And uh, thank you uh, very much. I'm, I'm honored that uh, that you were here. And uh, to our listeners, I want to thank all of you for listening this morning. This is Delmarva Today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. <laughs>